1 Samuel chapter 16. I'd like to talk to you this morning about pursuing a heart for God. We've been talking these days about the judges, and now we're moving into the section of the kings. And in verse number 1 of 1 Samuel 16, the scripture says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. This was a dangerous mission. Now remember, Saul was on the throne, and now uh, Samuel is saying, listen, we've got to go out here in the country, uh, Bethlehem, and we've got to find ourselves another king. This sounds like some sort of an overthrow, doesn't it? A dangerous mission. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. He gives him the instructions. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. And what the Lord is saying here to Samuel is, I just want you to step out. I'll, I'll guide you. All, I, all I'm going to do right now is point you in the right direction. Go to Bethlehem. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. They're getting ready for the sacrifice. And he says, first of all, before we sacrifice to God, we have to sanctify ourselves. We have to cleanse ourselves. And come with me and sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now Samuel knew how to anoint kings. And so he comes to Bethlehem and, he, and Jesse gets all of his sons in order there, seven of them. And uh, here's the first one, Eliab, and, uh, and spontaneously Samuel says, I, I think he's the man. And then the Lord says in verse 7, look at this, this is one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him or I refuse him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, but man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now I love that because um, that is so different than how we approach things today. And in every day, we look at people, we kind of like scope them out, Hey, this person really has their life together. Boy, they'd make a great leader. And they have qualities. They do this. They have that. And the Lord says, do not look on their outward appearance. Don't look at their life on the outside. I know the inside. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And so he goes down through all the sons and uh, in verse 10, the Lord said, listen, I haven't chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. Now, you know who this is. This is David. His father doesn't even mention him. 
He said, oh yeah, we have another one. He's out there. I say, the, there remains the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, stand and bring him for we will not sit down until he comes. Samuel says, listen, we're not going to have the feast until he comes. And so he sent and brought, brought him in and, and he was ready. Uh, some people think that uh, he had red hair and bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. The Lord said, This is him. And Samuel took the horn and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And look what happened. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Look what else happened. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now I think most of us in this auditorium know the reason why. God chose David. David was a man after God's own heart. God was looking for a special person to be the most outstanding king of the nation of Israel. Uh, he had a heart for God. Have you ever heard someone talk about a person in those terms, this person has a real heart for God? Uh, they talk about God so openly and honestly. They talk about God like he's actually real. They talk about heaven like it's an actual place, something special about those people. They're really close to God. One of the messianic titles of Jesus in the New Testament is Son of David. David was so extremely highly esteemed that there was a title of Christ that goes Son of David. Wow. That title is used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. David is going to become one of the most awesome men in the Bible. He's mentioned a thousand times in the pages of Scripture, more than Abraham, more than Moses, more than any man in the New Testament. And so many times we read that about David and we don't think how magnanimous he really was. You know, when we go in the Old Testament, I think sometimes you wilt a little bit. You know, you like the New Testament. You can find your way around there easier. You get to the Old Testament, you're kind of like underwater, you know. But you know, the Old Testament is important because it fits perfectly with the New Testament. Someone told me, and I told you this before, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. They go together. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, all these things have happened to them as examples to us. And they were written down for our admonishment. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. All these things in the Old Testament were examples. The Greek word there for example is tupos, from which we get the English word type or typical. And so these old stories in the Bible have pictures of things in the New Testament. Uh, they are foreshadowments. You know, when a person starts to read the Old Testament, they come to the realization really quick, it's all about the Jews, and it is. But after they come to that realization, the next realization is it's all about Jesus in the Old Testament. And so when we read the Old Testament, we should not only, the Jews, that's a foregone co conclusion. We should be looking for Christ in the Old Testament. And here we find David. Now David is a type of Christ. There is this transition that we're doing right now 
in our study this morning from the judges to the kings. What's the difference between them? Well, we've been through the period of the judges, and you remember what we said about that. They were people that God raised up for particular challenges that Israel was going through, but now we move out of that into the kings. And the reason why we do is because uh, the nation of Israel, the people said, we want a king like the other nations. Kingship was popular. They wanted to be like the other nations. 1 Samuel 8, 5 says, make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. 1 Samuel, the next verse, verse 6 says, but being displeased, Samuel, when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me that I should reign over them. Remember, at this particular time in the judges, the Lord God was the king. And the judges pointed their finger and they said, listen, we do have a king. His name is God. But that, the people, they weren't satisfied with that. They wanted a king that had like flesh and blood, bones, somebody that they could bow down to in personal, in a personal way. They had a great arrangement. And the Lord says, listen, give them a king. Samuel, this is no reflection on you. They rejected me, not you. 1 Samuel 12, 19 says, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord for God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. They knew that they had made a mistake. Especially they knew they had made a mistake when they got Saul. But they weren't willing to backtrack. They didn't want to turn the time back. Well, God knew. We believe that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything about everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. 400 years before this, God gave some instructions about Israel's future king. And uh, I want you to write this down and look it up at home. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Here's some stipulations for the future king back in Deuteronomy. He shall, be, he shall not be a foreigner. He shall be a native of the land. He shouldn't use the office to enrich himself. Now, we've lived in an era of time where we've seen dictators all over the world enrich themselves, right? Saddam Hussein had palaces everywhere. Baby Doc in Haiti, he had more money than all of Haiti had put together. Uh, he says the king shouldn't enrich himself. He shouldn't use his office to make money. He shouldn't marry a lot of wives because they'll turn his heart away from God. But there's, a, there's an interesting part in this Deuteronomy 17 passage that really, really is interesting to me. It goes like this, verse 18. When he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the law in a book. My future king has to have a book in his hand from the priests and the Levites. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. You know, powerful people become fearless. They think they're God. And the Lord says, listen, the king's got to remember I'm God in heaven. I rule. He says, I want him to have this book. And he wa I want him to learn to observe all the words of the law. And his heart may not be filled above his brothers that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right hand or to the left. And that he may prolong his days in his kingdom and his children in the midst of Israel. Now, this is so interesting. I know you're going to get a king, but when you get a king, tell him to get a book. 
It's the law. And I want, you, I want him to read it all the time. And I don't want him to turn from the left hand to the right hand. And if he reads it and he obeys it, this is the king. Uh, I'm going to bless him and I'm going to protect his, I'm going to protect his dominion. And I'm going to protect his family if he does this. Well, their reason for wanting a king was wrong. They wanted to be like all the other nations. You know, peer pressure is a powerful thing, isn't it? When young people are growing up in the home, all they, they come home and say, Dad, let me be like all the other kids down at school. And Dad says, well, that's not going to happen in this house. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> and the kid in his heart, he's, uh, he says, well, let's, see. let's just see about that. And so the standoff begins. But, you know, peer pressure is something that's really real. But in this situation, it was nation pressure. The nation of Israel was tired of being different. They wanted to be like all the other nations. Uh, whenever they went down to Egypt, God protected them because they were shepherds, and the Egyptians hated shepherds. And so God kept them in their little enclave out here, and that's, that was good for them. They did not assimilate into the fabric of Egypt. And that's something that you and I need to, to understand. Jesus said in John 17 when he was praying, he says, listen, my children are in the world, but they're not of the world. Uh, they can't feel comfortable there. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be not conformed to this world. And that means don't be pressed into the mold of this world. Uh, we have to shake this all the time. Somebody came into church the other, a few weeks ago and they said, Pastor, I was at a family reunion. Now those are dangerous things. Or a high school reunion. Family reunion, I guess, could be dangerous too, right? High school reunion. And uh, at the reunion, I felt uh, kind of out of place. I, I didn't fit in. It just uh, made me feel uncomfortable. And I thought to myself, that's the way it should be when you're a Christian. Things are going a little haywire, off, a little off color. Uh, be not conformed. Don't be pressed into the, into the mold of the world. You know, there's a difference between a king and a judge. A judge was a leader raised up by God usually to meet a specific need in a time of crisis. And when the crisis was over, the judge just kind of went back to doing what he did before. But the king held his office as a king as long as he lived and passed the throne on to his descendants. You know, a judge didn't make a government. They met a specific need in a time of crisis. But a king made a government and a bureaucracy. In Judges 8, Gideon was offered the throne over Israel, and he refused it. He said, I'll not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. That was the opinion of the judge. The judge says, listen, God is the king. Let's just keep it that way. But the people wouldn't stand for that. And so the Lord told Samuel, I want you to warn. I want you to warn these people and tell them what they're in for when they get a king. And this is the, one of the most interesting passages in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, Samuel gives the warning for the people. Okay, if you get a king, this is the way it's going to be. And he mentions this thing six times. I, he will take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your money. He will take, he will take, he will take. If you get a king... He's going to be a taker. I just want you to know what you're getting in for. And you will be his servant. 
but still they persisted. Well, the first king of Israel was Saul. But you know, not every king is a taker. The king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a giver. The Bible says he came not to be served, but to serve. Isn't that interesting? The great king is a giver, not a taker. And so in this world, uh, kings are raised up all over the place, and uh, they do a really good job taking things. And so in verse number one here, we find God choosing another king. Saul started out pretty good, but he ended terribly, and God says, listen, we have to do better than this. I'm going to look for a man after my own heart, and so therefore I want you to go to Bethlehem. Now, remember I said David was a type of Christ? Where did Christ come? from Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Uh, we find here that uh, David was anointed here in Bethlehem. There are two, actually two other anointings of David, one before the nation of Israel and one before the section of Judah as well, actually three anointings. Well, they went down and uh, they couldn't find the, the story as the story goes. And the father says, yes, there is this youngest one. He's out keeping sheep. He probably was looked upon with low regard. He didn't even mention his name. The family was not wealthy because if they were, David probably wouldn't have been out there. They would have had a hard hand out there in the field. But David was called to be the king when he was keeping the sheep. You know, to be a shepherd is a special, you have to have a special heart to do that. He had to trust God in the middle of danger. And remember, David said later, he said, listen, I know how to handle danger. I've learned how to fend off the lions and fend off the bears and all the predators that come after the, the sheep because God was preparing him for you know what? Remember the big guy? He was right around the corner. And so here's little David, little unknown David out in the, she out in the sheepfold out here. And uh, God is getting him ready for a big group of sheep. David's years of keeping the sheep. In fact, in Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4, Asaph, who wrote that portion, talked about that God brought David on the scene because he was shepherding according to the integrity of his heart. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus said that David was 10 years old, but Josephus is always given to exaggeration. Other people think that David was at least between 15 and 20 years old when he had this first anointing when he was brought in. Why did God choose him? Because of his heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14, that's the verse. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Uh, now remember, he had a heart for God before he was anointed to be the king. He was called by God to be a king. And in the Old Testament, the word heart means this. It means our will, our emotions, our intellect, our desires, the inner person. That's who we are on the inside. God looked into little shepherd David's heart and said, you have a heart for me. You have a heart for me. And so Paul was preaching in Acts chapter 13, and he talked about this. He was reviewing the history of Israel. And he said, David, the son of Jesse, is a man after God's heart who shall fulfill all my will. Now follow this. When you're a person after the heart of God, 
you want to fulfill the will of God. If you have God's heart in you, that's your passion, that's your desire, to fulfill the will of God. Now, Saul didn't have God's heart within him, and so therefore he didn't fulfill the will of God. But God says, listen, I've got to find me somebody that will fulfill my will on earth. And you know, this should be our passion. Our passion should be, Lord, I want to do your will in my life. You know, I'm going to get up on Monday tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. I want to walk in your will, not mine. Because our will always kind of, kind of tends to lead us in the wrong direction, right? But I'm convinced in the Bible that God will never lead you in the wrong direction if you do his will. Well, God's choice of David shows that we don't have to quit our jobs or enter into a full-time ministry to, the, to have a, a heart after God. You know, I believe that full-time ministry is overrated. I really do. You know, we make much of it. Oh, this person's a full-time Christian. We make much of it. But, you know, I don't think God needs a lot of high-profile people, really. Uh, he needs people uh, in the workplace, down at the mill. He needs people in the little computer cubicle next to his buddies. He needs people out on the ball field. He needs people in every walk of life walking and doing and trying to do God's will. That's where God's work is really done. It really is. So many of the people that I know came to Christ, not because they came to church and heard a sermon, not because they came for a program, but because their buddy prayed for them at work and went out in the car after work and said, sit down, Bill, I want to tell, tell you about what God's done in my life. God's touched my heart and I've been praying for you. That's what, before he called him to this special place, his heart was already in tune with God. And so where did David get this heart? I suggest a few things this morning. Having a heart for God, I think, began in David's home. Obviously, when he was out under the stars, he was being drawn to God, but somebody started him on that path. In the Bible, David says nothing about his father. But twice in the Psalms, he refers to his mother as the maid servant of the Lord. You know, when a mother is a servant of the Lord, you know what she wants for her kids? She wants God for her kids, right? That's her goal. That's why, that's why she's in this thing. She wants God. Uh, and so I think David had this foundation at home. Uh, remember Paul, when he was talking about Timothy, had the same foundation. He says, listen, Timothy, I know you. Uh, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded in you too. And so having a heart for God begins at home. Uh, I think it begins before children are born in the home. I think when it begins before mother becomes pregnant, and after, every day thereafter, when she touches her stomach and she says, oh God, touch this little critter. <laughs> That's a good name, critter, right? Touch this little critter. And uh, give him a heart for God. And uh, God loves those prayers. You know, we all like compliments. I, I think it was Mark Twain who said that he, he would live for a whole month uh, on a good compliment. 
As a Christian, I can think of no higher compliment than to be described as a man or woman with a heart after God. Uh, and, you know, it's one thing for you to say of me that I have a heart after God, and it's one thing for me to say of you that you have a heart for God, but it's another thing to have God say, His heart is after me. And that's exactly what we have here in the study of the book of David. David, God says, David, heart is after my heart. He's in tune with me. He's going to do my will. There is a man after my own heart. I think another thing to develop a heart after God is, is we must be, in our world, converted. What is conversion? It begins there. David was converted in the Old Testament way. Jesus said in Matthew 18:3, except you are converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, conversion means to turn away from something to something else. Uh, it means to be restored to a relationship with God. Uh, conversion is important. Uh, it's a change in our life. And David referred to this in Psalm 51.5. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He recognized that there was nothing good in himself that he could present to God for salvation. He was a sinner born that way, a sinner by birth and a sinner by choice. There was nothing good that he could present of his own good works. In Psalm 32, he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. He realized that his sins separated him from God, but when he was forgiven, he had communion. He was converted. He had a conversion experience. You know, a conversion experience doesn't have to be dramatic. When I was a kid, I, my conversion experience was dramatic. But most of the people I know don't have a dramatic conversion experience. Most of the people that I know, it's a simple heartfelt thing from the heart. And some people can't even put their finger on a time or a place in their life where they accepted Christ. They just knew that something was going on inside of them that made them love God for the very first time in their life for what he did for them on the cross. I've had people go so far to say, as, listen, I don't even know what's going on in my heart, but God is changing me. They're converted. That's conversion. They're, it's conversion when, you, when your heart places its faith in Christ alone for your salvation. That's conversion. Well, I ask you this morning in the church to examine yourself in the light of scriptures on this most crucial issue. Growing up in a Christian home, being baptized, or joining a church doesn't mean that you're converted. Praying a prayer and inviting Jesus into your heart doesn't mean that you're converted. Making a decision for Christ, having an emotional experience doesn't mean that you're converted. Faith is a response of the heart. That's the biblical way of salvation. Prayer means that we can pray, of course, and we can express our thanksgiving to God, uh, to Christ that he died on the cross for our sins. But faith is fully trusting in his death as being sufficient for our soul's salvation. It's relying on him and him alone as our, our Savior. Uh, there's nothing that we can present to God uh, that uh, will stand us in good stead. Faith, uh, faith is a wonderful thing of the heart. It's expressed when we thank the Lord for that. Well, you know, when we're 
if we're looking for a heart from God, I believe that we must be filled with the Spirit. And that simply means that we desire to be controlled by the Spirit. Romans 8 9 says that he who has not the Spirit is none of his. Uh, in the Old Testament, you notice that uh, I think David's conversion was first, and I think the Spirit came upon him secondly, because that's the way it happened in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, whenever we accept Jesus as our Savior, uh, the Spirit comes immediately into our being and makes us alive to God. And then he begins to produce fruit in our heart, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We had a guy in our church a few years ago, and, and he was converted. Converted. And uh, we were talking one day, he was sitting up here in the front. We were talking one day, and his wife says, Oh, I know this guy. He's really converted. <laughs> He's not the guy who used to be at home. He's a new person. Because he began to exhibit things that were not natural for him. He began to look like a different person. Uh, he was controlled by the Spirit. To have a heart for God, we must spend time alone with God, I believe. Uh, you know, you have to fight to do this in this world, don't you? To get away from the noise, to read, to learn to worship. I read that George Mueller read the Bible 200 times. Many of those times he read the Bible on his knees. God used him in an incredible way. Uh, whenever we spend time alone with God, we can learn to worship him. Uh, and then when, when we come to church, this whole thing is just natural. It just flows out of us because we've already been doing that all week. We've already been worshiping God. Uh, having a heart for God means that uh, we become obedient in small things. Uh, kind of a menial thing being a shepherd out there in Bethlehem playing his harp. He never knew that he was going to be in the king's palace playing for him. You know, I once heard about a pastor tell of an opportunity he had to speak at a national director's meeting of a large mission organization. And he was scheduled to speak at about 1 p.m. A friend from the mission picked him up and drove to the conference center and, and uh, he asked, uh, well, how did everybody's morning go? And uh, the guy said, well, listen, the, the people had been meeting all morning. They had some heated debates over some policy matters. Uh, that's not an ideal situation to stand up before a group of pastors that have been fighting with one another. And so the pastor began by asking the man to, to bow their heads and raise their hands if they had spent time alone with God that morning. Remember, these were the top officials of the mission. But only a few hands out of the many went up. And so the pastor took some time for them to spend quietly before God, before he spoke. Then he insisted that they spend three hours the next morning in the word and prayer before, they came, before he came to speak at 1 p.m. At first they balked, protesting they had so much work to do. But he said, listen, he stuck to his guns. And he said that the next day when he spoke at 1 p.m., it was a different group of people that he spoke to. Uh, we have to guard our time alone with God. We have to find a quiet place somewhere, someplace, somehow, and we have to retreat there. 
And it's there that we, that God does this internal work in our heart. Uh, we know that David had a heart for God. And I hope one day, and maybe, maybe you will never say that of me, or I may never say that of you, and it doesn't matter if we do that. But it would really be nice if God would say that of us. He has a heart for me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our heart, our eyes closed. I'd like to ask you this morning, how's your heart? Is it turned toward God? Is it turning toward God? Well, you know, it can begin in the home and maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, well, you know, in our home we didn't have these kind of teachings. We didn't have the Bible in our home. Well, you know, that can all change. It can begin in your home. And then if it begins in your home, it'll be in your kid's home. It's a wonderful thing to see generation after generation follow the Lord. To have a heart for God, we must be converted. Listen, don't let anybody sell you on the idea that just coming to church is good enough. It's not. Don't let anybody sell you on the idea that you just have to be a good person. That's not good enough. You can't do that. You must abandon yourself to God. You must accept him by faith and faith alone. Take everything out of your hands and say, Lord, here are my empty hands. I have nothing to give you but my sin. And I accept your forgiveness that you purchased for me upon the cross. I'm clinging to you and you alone. I want to be converted. I just don't want to be a church member. I want to be a child of God. I want to have a conversion experience. I need your, the fruit of your love in my life. You're here as a Christian today. You are, you've been converted. You know it. But maybe of late, uh, you've been walking out of the will of God. You're not controlled by the Spirit. You've been disobedient in small things that God asked you to perform. And so your heart is kind of drifting away. I encourage you today to come back. Come back to the Lord. I'll tell you, you'll be glad you did. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for David's life in the Bible, how it shines to us today. Down through these many years, it's a terrific example for us. We pray that you'll put in our heart this passion, this week especially, to be a person after your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand together as we sing our closing song together. And if you'd like to come and pray, please feel free to do that.